Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back everyone. And today is another episode with a few different stories linked by a common theme. And that theme is the city of Glasgow. Like my more recent episodes with multiple stories, I'll be weaving the discussion section and the tale telling together rather than trying to have a discussion section at the end, despite what it says in the introduction to the podcast. I'm also going to say before I start that this has been a very difficult episode for me to write and release. I had some ideas of the stories I wanted to tell beforehand, particularly ghost stories, and I actually found many of them were far shorter than I anticipated, much more recent than I thought, and many of the tales were more like eyewitness accounts than stories, perhaps better placed on Uncanny than on here. That gave me pause for thought, and I reordered the whole episode. Then I ended up writing far too much even for me, and really had to pare it down, and now... We've basically got two subtopics within the main theme of Glasgow. I'm not now dissatisfied with this episode, I would not release it if I was, but it's not quite as diverse in terms of number of stories as some of the other episodes where I've got a lot of different tales crammed into one. I have decided to put some of those ghost stories I researched into a Patreon episode so they won't entirely go to waste, but just wanted to let you know that it's been an odd one. And in addition to that, I have been performing a live show, which has taken some time away from the podcast. I realise that most of my listeners are abroad or in the South, but I do intend to take that live show to Nottingham, Newcastle and maybe Manchester, and I will be bringing new live shows to the back rooms of pubs in various different places. If this is relevant to you, then the best way to find out about it is to follow me on social media. Tickets have been selling out fast, and hopefully I'll go further afield soon. Okay, that's quite enough of that. So, the theme here is the city of Glasgow, the largest city in Scotland, third largest in the UK. Sitting astride the Great River Clyde, with access to the Atlantic on the west coast, between Highland and Lowland, today a vibrant city, with resplendent Victorian architecture and parks, playing host to trendy bars, shops, cafes, theatres, as well as much older public houses, which are still very lively to this day. As modern industries thrive amongst the remnants and last proud holdouts of their much older brethren, that is the factories, the steelworks, and particularly the great shipyards. Or at least that's the kind of lazy journalistic summary of the place. I could also have taken a different tack to approach Glasgow, talked about Mars bars in Batter on Socky Hall Street, the Tron, the legacy of the tenements, the reputation of deprivation and violence, about the Glaswegian dialect, about Celtic and Rangers, George Square, and a traffic cone on top of a statue. A little behind the veil here, but in preparation for this episode, I listened back to my description of Manchester in the Manchester episode, and I found how I approached that whole piece wanting, not because there was anything technically wrong with it, but more because I found the idea of somehow trying to capture the essence of a place in a few words frustratingly incomplete and impossible. Any attempt to do so, even by someone far better informed than your humble, humble until I've had a few pints in me at least, humble narrator, is just not up to the task. Is it even at heart right to attempt to summarise a city of over half a million people, or even a million depending on 
quite how you define Glasgow, with over one and a half thousand years of history, all the countless lives that have been lived there over that time, also very different and unique. To try compressing that into a few pithy lines, can it be true in any meaningful way? But this is the kind of thinking that leads me down a rabbit hole you really aren't interested in, you know, directly into the broad questions of epistemology. Can anything really be true or meaningful? I'm just saying this because I want to emphasise how shallow, how potentially misleading anything I can say as an introduction is to understanding a city as large and long-lived as Glasgow. If you're new to the podcast, I'm sorry, this is how it goes sometimes. I do actually get round to stories, but you've probably already switched off. And you know what? Let's gradually work our way into a story. Now, apart from those cities in Britain which are literally named after saints, it is hard to think of many in which a saint has such a central role in the city's modern identity, and indeed throughout the ages, as the patron saint of Glasgow does. Saint Kentigern, much better known as Saint Mungo, plays a prominent role in the city to this day. His face is on the city's coats of arms, his words, its motto. A vast street mural of him, clad in modern garb, has to be one of the most impressive in the city amongst many impressive bits of street art. And his name pops up all over Glasgow, from schools to breweries and everything in between. There's even a St Mungo festival. And perhaps this association with him is so strong because, as well as being patron saint of the city, he has a claim, a good claim, to be its founder. Let's go back from present-day Glasgow show clock faces turning in reverse, gradually replace those clock faces with more and more antique kind of clocks until those are replaced with sundials still turning in reverse, until we're back at the very start of Glasgow's history. And there is a cart, and in that, there was a corpse, a peaceful-looking corpse, well-dressed in the garments of a holy Christian man. The year was, let's say sometime in the 500 CE, over 500 years after the life of Jesus Christ, so distant from Scotland's shore, but yet that life would have such a lasting influence on the country. Now, we're not technically in Scotland here, because Scotland does not exist as of yet. We're in Altclute, or the Kingdom of Strathclyde, a Britonic state in the west of what is now Scotland, and a bit of northern England. Many centuries will pass before there is a Scotland. Christianity in Altclude was not new by this point. Indeed, by now it was becoming widespread, thanks to the works of various missionaries and saints. But it was still not the faith of all in the land. The church was small, and many practitioners of older religions still held sway. Actual historical details of them and their religion is scant, but through medieval Christian stories we know a lot about them. For we are reliably informed that these people were pagan, evil, misled worshippers of an exciting variety of devils and demons. So let's return to our Christian holy man, who is dead, but resting in peace. He had on his face a kind of smug expression of someone who knew he was going to heaven after a life lived long in piety. And yet common Christian burial traditions don't involve being put in a cart, especially not a cart that was being pulled 
by two wild bulls, as this one was. This was all very much off script. The cart was being accompanied. Some were certainly mourners of the dead man, but more amongst them were here for the celebrity. Saint Kentigern, a man whose name was well known for his powerful magic miracles, he insisted they were called, because they were done by God, but they did seem to happen quite a lot when Kentigern was around. And right now he was performing another. The bulls who were pulling the cart were feeling pretty surprised. As confused as bulls can be, really. For they were meant to be doing their own things. Bull things. Things that were important to them. And yet, here they were, shackled to a cart. They couldn't even understand language, and yet this man had instructed them to go to the cart with the dead human in it, stand there meekly to be yoked, and then pull it. Pull it, the man had said, as those bulls somehow understood, to a place where God would provide for it. And now they were walking, somewhere. They didn't know where, but the bulls were the ones leading. They looked at each other helplessly out of the corners of their eye, and if they'd been able to speak, they probably would have said, What the devil is happening here? What are we doing? Let's charge these people and get out of here. But they couldn't. And onwards, calmful, peacefully, quite humble-like, in defiance of all those instincts telling them to run, to smash the cart, send the corpse tumbling to the floor, off they trotted. Their bodies were no longer theirs. This was a miracle. On they walked, and behind them came St. Kentigern and his posse. Now, I've not actually talked a lot about saints on this podcast, which is a bit of an oversight, as the stories of them are pretty cool and incredibly numerous. When it comes to the stories of the saints, I kind of categorise them roughly into three types, or at least on a spectrum of three types, which they might mix and match between. On one hand, you've got the coolest ones of all, those who are basically D&D adventurers without the party. Kind of like witches, I suppose, but with much higher magic skills. The mapping to witches is pretty straight on. These saints go around slaying monsters, fighting bandits, saving people from all kinds of evil peril, and with the added bonus when compared to witches, that they don't constantly mock people when they think something's a dragon. Because, in the case of the saints, it quite often is a dragon. And these saints were generally beloved by people for their kick-assery. Then there's another class of saints, who are just generally uptight bastards. Go around poking their nose into everyone's lives, telling them they're doing it wrong, lecturing them endlessly, maybe destroying shrines. Just unpleasant, judgmental asshats of the highest order, who just so happen to be right in these stories, but in the worst internet atheist way of being right. And then there are the saints who are just kind of quiet types, might even be hermits, calm, do miracles, but in a much lower key kind of way. Even if the miracles are fairly impressive, they're likely to found some kind of Christian order, maybe even two, but mostly just get on with worshipping. A bit preachy, but not too pushy. Kind of show people by example. These types are the ones who, apart from maybe being a little holier than thou, would probably be the nicest to actually know and are also surely the most boring. And I think it's to this latter category that St. Kentigern mostly belonged. This didn't mean his powers weren't impressive. Sticking with the D&D analogy for a moment, all these saints were capable of epic level magic. 
but miracles came with the considerable drawback that their use was controlled by a god who, if not exactly capricious, was certainly inconstant when it came to specifying what deserved a miracle or not. Editor's note, it has occurred to me since writing this that there is a fourth type of saint, the ones who really only become noteworthy at the point they die, but those weren't the ones wandering around, so we're not going to speak any more about those. Back to St Kentigern. It isn't clear to me exactly what he had done to be the subject of such miracles. He had, according to later writers, been sanctified in the womb of his mother. So, it wasn't personal achievement here. If anything, he seems to have basically got it by default from his mum, Tenyu, who was also a saint. Sainthood by nepotism, I think. There's potentially quite a lot to say about Tenyu. I'm going to summarise very quickly. She was a Christian princess, from somewhere in Godovan, another pre-Scottish kingdom. Her father, the king, was a pagan. He tried to kill her because she became pregnant out of wedlock, and pagans hated that, apparently. Which is odd, because that to me sounds like the kind of thing that Christians hate. But apparently it was pagans too, and Christians were also cooler with it back then or something. God himself didn't mind she got pregnant out of wedlock, because he intervened to save her life. She escaped, wound up hanging out with Saint Surf, yet another saint with a long history I can't go into, because honestly, you start talking about one saint, you get into the whole saint cinematic universe, and there's just days of content there. Saint Surf had a little Christian community going at Culross in another of those pre-Scottish kingdoms, and it was in that community that Kentigern grew up. And Saint Surf thought Kentigern was great for all kinds of reasons. You know what, I don't think I can put it better myself, so I'm going to just quote from the manuscript here. Saint Surf saw that Saint Kentigern, quote, has an attentive heart, a keen nature for understanding, a firm memory to retain what had been learned, a persuasive tongue to produce what he desired, and a sublime voice, dripping with sweetness, harmoniousness, and, as it were, never weary of singing the divine praises. Moreover, all these gifts of grace gilded a life worthy of praise, and for that reason he was, in the eyes of the holy old man, that's Saint Surf, more precious and lovable than all of his companions." Unquote. And that last line is pretty heavy. He was better than all the rest, more loved than all the rest, the teacher's pet and then some. Imagine being in St Kentigern's class at Saint School with his teacher telling you how much he loved Kentigern. Not just loved him for himself, but more than anyone else there, making it clear to you that you could never measure up to, well, this saint of a child. Kentigern does everything right. Kentigern's mother was literally a saint, you know. How to crush the spirit of literally every other child in that class. And this, I think, probably explains quite well why some of his classmates tried to get him into trouble. Saint Surf had a pet robin, or at least a kind of semi-tame robin that he fed and considered his friend. And as a man who kind of has a pet pigeon which turned up one day and which I feed and which doesn't go away and lives with me kind of now, I know how strong a bond between man and bird that's come to live with him can be. One day the other boys studying under Saint Surf accidentally, in a bit of a game, they killed Saint Surf's robin. It was by accident and they were very sad indeed. They were sad about the robin dying and genuinely remorseful for that, but they were also quite terrified of what Saint Surf would do. 
and I'm not just talking your usual school corporal punishment here. Saint Surf was, well, in many ways, that first type of saint. He was a man who had killed a dragon with just his staff. So who knew what he would be capable of when he came to punish the children who had killed his friend? So the children fought it over and decided to kill two birds with one stone, as it were. One literal bird and one metaphorical bird. They took the poor broken body of the robin to Saint Surf and pretended that Kentigern had killed it. They looked all sad about it and did some fake tears and everything. And Saint Surf was furious. For a moment, things looked dicey for the young goody-two-shoes Kentigern. Now he was sure to attract his master's wrath, for all the other boys swore it had been Kentigern. But God, in heaven, so often absent, decided that now was the right time to intervene over this reasonably trivial issue in the scope of humanity's problems. And so he did. For when Saint Surf presented Kentigern the evidence of his murder in the form of that avian corpse, Kentigern took the robin into his hands, prayed to Jesus, and the bird came back to life. Powerful magics indeed. And for obvious reasons, this quite impressed Saint Surf, even as a dragon killer himself. And it confirmed everything he already knew about the boy, how his place in the world was so holy and how special he was. Not only Saint Surf, but God himself played favourites with Kentigern. The boy's plan had gone completely wrong, for now Saint Surf liked Kentigern even more than before. This had been the young saint's first miracle, and another followed swiftly after. Still seething at his special treatment and the failure of the robin plan, the other boys set to bullying him again. Apparently they weren't put off by his display of necromantic power, which, at least they were brave. This time, when he was meant to be looking after the lanterns in the church, the other boys put them all out, and for good measure, they also put out any fires he might have been able to use to relight them. And when St. Cantagone found out about this, he summoned a fire from heaven onto a branch of still green hazel, and he used that to light the lanterns. So, once again, thwarting the plans of the boys even more, with what I'm sure is a very legitimate use of divine flame. And this, of course, made Saint Surf love him even more, and Saint Surf started to refer to Kentigern as, My dear friend, just to let the other boys know that he really was the favourite, especially after all those miracles. And dear friend, in the Britonic tongue he spoke, a language now extinct, well, that sounded something like Mungo. And soon after, everyone was calling St Kentigern dear friend, and he would be known forevermore, and from now on in this story, as Saint Mungo. Later on, he would one-up that Robin miracle by raising a man from the dead, pretty much in passing. And when he was all grown up, Saint Mungo left Saint Surf, doing so in a showy-off kind of way, where he separated the waters of a river and walked on the riverbread across it, fish be damned, and made sure Saint Surf couldn't follow him. Truth be told, Saint Mungo was a young man, and Saint Surf was beginning to get a bit clingy by this point. And that more or less brings us up to speed to where Saint Mungo is now, with a cart led by two wild bulls containing a dead body and heading off to wherever it is that God wills it to go. 
The at peace body is that of a Saint Mungo fanboy, Fergus. An old man, presumably with an actual full life, but is remembered for getting old and really wanting to see the famous Saint Mungo before he died. Even though at this point Saint Mungo was only famous in a small area. He came to Fergus to grant Fergus's wish, and the old man pretty much immediately died. And Saint Mungo had put his body on this cart, found and tamed the two wild bulls who pulled it using miracles. And now they were all off. They being all of Saint Mungo's followers, Fergus's corpse, presumably Fergus's grieving friends and family, and other onlookers who were just in it for the entertainment value. Off they went to wherever God provided for it. This could have turned into a very long quest, but thankfully they had been walking only some 30 miles or so, at a relaxed pace, when the place was found. Now, that was just long enough and just far enough away that some people were beginning to get a bit bored. A few of the bystanders had wandered off. But they missed the small party coming upon a beautiful green hollow by a burn, a burn being a small river, which ran through a great ravine. The location had good views, it was close to water, and it really was a glorious green place. It felt kind of serene and perfect, even before the bulls chose to halt there. Now, slightly confusingly, this wasn't precisely pristine, untouched lands. For reasons I struggle to properly understand, this place by God's divine planning, I suppose, actually contained a cemetery that had been previously consecrated by Saint Ninian, another saint I can't tell you about because I'll just keep going down that rabbit hole. But though it was consecrated as such, nobody had actually been buried in this graveyard, which seems odd, though there were a couple of Christians living in the vicinity. So Saint Ninian had made a graveyard, but not buried anyone there. And of course, this made it the perfect place to bury a good Christian. The divine plan works. The bulls stopped, dropped the cart, and then a funeral was conducted. No word on what happened to the bulls, I hope they were just allowed to wander off and get on with life again. And maybe given directions back to where they came from originally or they'd be quite confused. Very soon the cemetery received its first body, and looking around at the rich countryside, Saint Mungo decided to settle in this place. Him and his followers built a church, a simple one, I hasten to add, and that he declared the place be known as the Dear Green Place, which in the language of the times sounded somewhat, though not entirely, like Glasgow. For Saint Mungo's church was the very first building in Glasgow, and it is at the very site of the current cathedral, which itself is the oldest building in Glasgow, dating to the 13th century or so, and there can be found to this very day the tomb of Saint Mungo which you can go and visit. The church was the first building in Glasgow and the cathedral very much remains at its heart. Editor's note, Dear Green Place is the translation of the name Glasgow according to this story. Other translations, probably more accurate translations, are available, though they do all seem to generally agree about the green bit. End of editor's note. Now, Fergus, of course, had come from a small town far away, so what he thought about being the first person to be buried in Glasgow is unclear. But he really did like St Mungo, so he was probably fine with it. And St Mungo declared of this new place, quote, 
Lord, let Glasgow flourish through the preaching of thy word and praising thy name. Unquote. Often shortened to simply, let Glasgow flourish. And those words are used as the city motto to this very day. Now, listeners, I've told you a bit about St Mungo to familiarise you with some of his most famous miracles and to talk about the founding of Glasgow. But I can't tell the whole life story here. There's simply far too much of it. So I'm just going to give you a potted history of the next section, and then I'm going to tell you the story he's probably most famous for. The Life of St Kentigern was written by Jocelyn of Furness in about 1200. Jocelyn of Furness incidentally, is one of the people who's been pegged as maybe giving us that story of St. Patrick and the snakes, by the way. But that's by the by. In that life of St. Kentigern, we found out how he next became a bishop in his new church in Glasgow. How he slept with his head on top of stone instead of a pillow. How he preached Christianity all over the place. How he went to Wales for a bit and hung around with St. David. And how he went to Rome. And then he went back to Rome. And then he went to Rome over and over again. There he was given a bell by the people, and at some later stage he got a wolf to pull a plough. How he and God working together flooded a river to prove to some disbelieving king how great God was. How he met a white wild boar which helped him find a place to build a monastery, because apparently if you didn't know where to build something and you were a saint, you just got a local animal to help you out. How he struck a man blind but cured him again. And how when he left Glasgow for his travels, some people turned back to their old pagan religions. And the source uses the wonderful simile, and I quote, As a dog returns to its vomit. Gotta love those hagiographies. But it's okay, because all those who turned back to the old religions were struck down by leprosy, insanity, paralysis, epilepsy, and other incurable diseases. And finally, about how St. Kentigern came back to Glasgow. Oh, and at some point he also meets Merlin, but that is a whole other story. It really was a very busy life. Now the Glasgow to which he returned was really just a church and a few houses around it, a small Christian centre in a rural landscape. The real centre of power at that time was some 15 miles away, at Dumbarton Rock, a mighty stronghold from where the kings of Alclud wielded their power. St Mungo had come back for two reasons. Firstly, because he'd been asked to by the Christian king of Alclut, King Redek Hyle, who was concerned about all the non-Christians in his kingdom and how they kept dying in all those horrible ways. And secondly, St Mungo came back because an actual angel had visited him and told him he needed to go back to Glasgow because a great nation would arise from that place. And when he was back, he took to zealously preaching to all the locals about the glory of God, heaven, and the awful effects of sin, idolatry, and disbelief. He threw some serious shade on Woden, and of course on Satan. He seems to have levelled up at some point, as now he was just going around healing people with all kinds of illnesses. He was frightening away skeleton monsters. The sick were cured just by being in his shadow or by touching his garments. Miracles, and I quote here, Miracles were his accustomed play and unceasing enjoyment, so that in a certain manner they became common. It seemed by this point he barely needed God's say-so. He could just do miracles at will. Obviously, he only used this for really important things, like, for instance, stopping the rain from ever landing on him or his clothes. The important stuff. And all of this might appear a little showy. 
but it does explain why people were converting to Christianity in droves. And yet none of this is really the story he's most famous for, and which is very much remembered in Glasgow to this day. Which I'm finally going to tell you now about half an hour into this podcast. And I'll say at the outset that this is a tale whereby the moral, which is what you'd often expect in a saint story, is not entirely clear, and I would argue somewhat at odds to usually presented Christian values. So let's start with that King Reddit Chile, who ruled over all of Alclut, a kingdom in which Glasgow was but a tiny dot. It was the king who asked St Mungo back, for he was a Christian and did good Christian things. And, amongst good Christian things, he believed in the sanctity of marriage. Naturally. His wife, Queen Langurov, had, however, other ideas. She clearly wasn't thrilled about being married to the king, and rather fancied a young soldier. I suspect someone much closer to her own age, and if you know me at all by now, you'll know that my sympathies are pretty much entirely with her here. Now Soldier Boy fancied her too, and one thing led to another, they got together, and then they got together again, and again, and I'll let the text speak for it now. The forbidden pleasure repeated many times had become more pleasing to both. Basically, they fucked. A lot. Queen Langugorov and this knight. For so long, in fact, that they became quite blasé about the keeping it secret thing. Even back then, it was basically impossible for a queen to keep secrets from everyone, given the attendants and servants and whatnot. And soon the situation was kind of, well, an open secret. But despite this, nothing happened, no vengeance from the king. King Redditch had indeed been told several times that this was happening, and basically refused to acknowledge it. Either because of genuine ignorance, or just not wanting it to be true. Or maybe, maybe he even thought it was kind of okay, maybe he wanted his wife to be happy despite the social norms that had forced them into marriage. That would be nice. And soon enough, those who reported the affair to him... Well, they started to fear for themselves, because even if it was true, such allegations were naturally treasonous. So long the affair continued, and no one was really being harmed, if you ask me. I mean, maybe the king, but without divorce, what else is going to happen? And I suspect he did alright for himself on the other lover's front anyway. So the whole situation might have continued indefinitely, had Langugorov and her soldier boy toy not gotten overly careless, to put it quite mildly. The king had given his wife a ring, a very notable ring, made of gold with some form of gem in it, a token of their marriage. And, perhaps in an act of mocking him, or rejecting his love, and showing how much she loved her young hunky catch, Langigarov gave that ring to the knight. Which was pretty silly generally, but probably more silly than that was that he decided to wear the ring. Now, How this fitted him, I don't know whether his fingers were particularly small for a soldier's, or hers particularly large for a woman's, or if it's somewhere between, but apparently their hands were perfectly matched. And so this lowly soldier wore the ring around wherever he went. This one-of-a-kind ring. And when this was pointed out to the king... Well, now the evidence was fairly indisputable. And now the king was furious. He was now being humiliated in front of his court, in front of everyone. This was no longer just a marital betrayal, but was actively undermining his authority, and the potential harm that that could cause went well beyond their marriage. This polite fiction could no longer be maintained. (laughs) 
Now, I would have thought what to do now if the king wanted to get back at his wife and our unnamed hunky soldier, well, it was clear cut. The evidence was there on the man's hand. The king could ask him where the ring came from, at the same time ask his wife to produce her ring, awkwardness would ensue, and then choppy choppy would probably follow. Or maybe exile if the king was feeling generous. But no, Redek, like villains everywhere, instead rolled out an overly convoluted plan which to my mind looks completely nonsensical outside of its place in this very specific narrative. It's just a baffling plan, but it seemed like he preferred complexity over results. I've only pointed that out, by the way, because I know you discerning listener will be thinking it anyway, so I'm just going to get in there first. So what our king did now was invite our soldier lover on a hunt. A simple, normal hunt outside of Dumbarton. And if you've learnt nothing else from this podcast, I hope you've taken away that men in old stories really, really, really like to hunt. It's a good 50% of what they do. The day of the hunt arrived and off they went, with lots of other people. Now, Soldier Boy was normally far beneath the king, socially, not physically like he was with the queen, so you wouldn't think he'd be on such a trip. And given this, you'd think he'd be pretty damn worried about this whole hunting trip thing, especially when he knew what he was doing with the king's wife, repeatedly, in many different configurations. You'd think that that would make him suspicious, careful. Did this stop him bringing the ring with him? Hell no! I think if we want to assume he's not a complete idiot, the only way this works is if the Queen actually didn't tell him that she got the ring from the King. That would kind of explain things here, though it does paint her in a very bad light. So let's assume he set out on the hunt worried about why he'd been invited, but in ignorant bliss about the fact that by wearing that ring, he was basically inviting an imminent demise. However, even if he had known, he would have been confused because nothing untoward happened. They enjoyed a fine morning's hunting, which I've described many times before on this podcast, almost certainly very inaccurately, so I'm not going to repeat such inaccurate descriptions again. Their usual dogs and horns and weapons and horses, but this was very early medieval, so throw that into the mix. Your standard hunt. And after half the day passed, the king, in some incredibly convoluted way, sent the dogs and servants off so that it was now just him and the soldier who might be getting a bit terrified. Maybe considering a little bit of regicide might be the only way to get out of this. But no, it turned out the king just wanted to relax on the glorious banks of the River Clyde. Let's take in the view, chill out a little. We've done a lot of hunting since the early hours, said the king reassuringly. And despite his tremendous amount of worry, somehow the warm day, the buzzing of insects and the sound of the river lulled the soldier into sleep. Which was convenient, because getting the soldier to sleep was a key part of this plan. And it seems like a very unlikely variable for the king to be relying on here, but the soldier was a sleepy little boy and soon he was snoring gently, being kind of adorable. And now the cunning king sprung into action, with what must have been utmost care. With yet another risky part of the plan, he took the ring from the soldier's finger. 
Oh, oh, what's up, what's up? Oh, the king freezes. Oh, it's all right. And then, the proof in hand, surely to confront his wife with. The king, in one swift motion, threw the ring straight into the River Clyde, where it hit the water with a plopping sound and sank. A little while later, the king roused the soldier lover, who didn't notice anything amiss because if we've learned nothing else about him, which we haven't, it's that he was a fairly oblivious kind of fella. The other companions and the dogs rejoined, the day's hunting was finished off, and the king went back to his chamber, let the young soldier go about his business with a cheery goodbye, and it was only when he met up with the queen that night that the behaviour of the king finally changed to what might be more expected of a humiliated, powerful cuckold who had been made a laughing stock at his own court. Darling, where's that ring I got you? You know, the gold with the jewels. You're not wearing it. And the Queen's heart sank upon hearing those words. She knew he knew, but it was okay because she, she'd get it back. She made some excuse about it being in a chest which seemed to satisfy the King. Well, could you fetch it from this chest for me then? She divvered and delayed as the King became increasingly cruel, but some way or other she managed to get a message to her soldier lover asking for its return. He, relaxing from his day's hunting, maybe with some venison in the oven, he looked down at his finger and only now noticed the absence of the ring. Cue him doing a panicked look around his lodgings, fair tearing them to pieces, maybe retracing all his steps for the day, checking behind the sofa and in the fridge and all the other places things can wind up if he was anything as scatterbrained as me. And yet, it was nowhere. Of course, for it was at the bottom of the river. And eventually, he sent a message back that explained both that the ring was lost and he couldn't find it, and that now he knew the king was looking for it, well, he decided to do the honourable thing and make himself incredibly scarce indeed. He was not going to wait around court for, well, as long as this took to blow over, really. Had a great time with you, but I think this affair has reached its natural conclusion. Hope things work out all right. And then he left the kingdom, something that the king presumably didn't care about, or if he did, just hadn't fought through. Of course, this was not the response Queen Langigorov wanted. She had expected the ring to be returned. How could he have lost it? And now she started to get more panicky, and indeed terrified, as the situation got more and more serious. She started to make weak excuses to her husband, in the sight of his advisers, while for his part the king now outright accused her of adultery, while oddly having disposed of the actual direct evidence of that in the river, for some bizarre reason. Nevertheless, the Queen didn't know that, and her world was crashing down around her. She couldn't have it all. This wasn't a world that supported women to make their own choices. The King kept demanding the ring back, and cruelly he hinged everything on this. If it could be produced, then perhaps he'd been wrong. If not, well then, he'd do what a good Christian King such as himself had to do in these situations. Execution. So very different from those pagans. 
and of course he knew it couldn't be produced, so this just seemed like he was now enjoying stretching out his revenge, all part of some kind of prolonged and sadistic psychological torture. Punishment for his humiliation, offering her hope when there was none. Which he then kind of followed up with some physical torture as well, by throwing his wife in jail, and telling her she had three days to produce the ring, via her servants. An arbitrary time limit for an impossible task. This was him reasserting his authority in view of everyone who mattered. The Queen despaired in her cell, sending out fruitless search parties and messengers to the soldier. Though exactly how retrieving the ring would help now, I am unclear. It would hardly prove anything after such a time. She was bitterly regretting all the good times she'd had as she contemplated her own imminent demise. And it's at this, her lowest point, when Saint Mungo finally gets involved in this story. He was now bishop, and fairly old, and he arrived at her prison cell to find her praying fervently to God for some kind of salvation, asking to show her mercy. When St Mungo arrived, I doubt she was in any fit state to notice that despite the typical Glaswegian weather, he was bone dry. She spilled her heart out to him, told him everything that she knew, and added that she was so contrite, knew what she'd done was so very wrong that she'd had a real change of heart, understood the need for a wife to be true and constant, oh, what a sinner she had been. You know, all the kind of things you would say to a holy person if you thought your life might depend on it. And apparently, all that was good enough, not just for St Mungo, but for the Holy Spirit itself. For once the Queen had poured out her confession, and her repeated and terror-induced repentance to Mungo, the Lord God spoke to him, in the form of the Holy Spirit, and filled in the blanks for St Mungo, the bits of this story that the Queen did not know, of how the King had come by the ring and how he had disposed of it, that this was an impossible task he had set. And while it is certainly true that adultery is bad in the eyes of God, it seems that murder was worse. So, in order to save this adulterer, St Mungo flexed those metaphorical miracle muscles one more time. Being so old, he couldn't travel to do the deed himself, but miracles could happen at a distance, and an unsuspecting servant was sent at St Mungo's request to do a spot of fishing. Everyone loves a fishing minigame, right? And this one was easy. The servant simply had to cast his fish hook into the River Clyde, catch just one fish, by clicking at the right time as the line bobbed and then turning the controller stick to wind it back in. I think that's how fishing works. And he had to bring that first fish he caught straight back to St Mungo. Off the man went, and he caught a fish with ease, probably spent the rest of the day maybe catching a couple more for himself anyway. And then, back to St Mungo, he returned. The saint now found himself the proud possessor of one quite dead fish. It was a salmon, exceedingly common at that time, well before industrialisation had turned the river into something really quite different and much less friendly to fish. Not that the river had been particularly friendly to this fish, which lay there glassy-eyed, quite unalive, as St Mungo took his knife to its belly. And surely you already know what is to happen as he cuts into that fish taken from the river at random. Yes, as he slices its belly, out falls the king's ring. 
which that fish had swallowed, and probably caused it a fair bit of pain before its death. Even back then, wildlife was suffering from human junk in the river. Now, of course, St Mungo had known that this would happen. But there was no one around to see him take the ring from the fish. After all, it would have somewhat undermined the Queen's successful return of the ring as proving her innocence if this was generally known. St Mungo wiped down the ring, gave it a little sniff, still a little bit fishy, but we have to do. He wrapped it up, sent it with a trusted messenger to the imprisoned Queen, and had himself an absolutely divine smoked salmon. Langigorov, languishing in her prison cell, was absolutely overcome with delight to receive it. She demanded an audience with her husband immediately, which he granted, expecting a contrite apology, I assume. But she had something else in mind. In front of everyone, all his court, she produced the ring triumphantly, loudly claiming that, just as he had said, this proved her innocence. For his part, the king stared at the ring for quite some time, examined it in great detail, wrinkled his nose. What was that smell? For he knew for certain that A, she was definitely an adulterer, and B, that there was no way that this could be that ring. He'd thrown it in the river. But it really, really looked like the ring. And he'd made this whole thing dependent on the ring, as if it proved anything. Why had he done that? He found himself asking. She cheated on him. Everyone knew she cheated on him. But this was all about the ring. And it was here. And so logically, she must be innocent. And so the king and other members of the court rounded on those who had correctly accused her of adultery. Though the queen did at least plead for mercy for them. Probably feeling quite guilty if they were to get into some very serious trouble for her very real affair. And while clemency was granted, in that they weren't immediately executed, I imagine their burgeoning careers in royal advisory were pretty truncated from that point onwards. Then the story ends with the king and the queen living happily ever after. I don't really believe that can possibly work, but that's apparently how it went. But the queen is meant to have stopped her wayward wandering after talking to St Mungo about it, but I for one hope she just learnt not to be so blatant about it and continue to enjoy a healthy series of lovers. And King Redek? Well, I can only assume he lived the rest of his life in utter confusion. St Mungo had done one more miracle, kept the king as a confused cuckold, and the queen had presumably learned her lesson after being threatened with death, and that's what God and St Mungo wanted out of the situation. So they were happy. And as a final corollary to all this, you might be thinking, well, if St Mungo and the Queen kept this secret, how do we know about it at all? And it's a very good question, but it's actually mentioned that while apparently the Queen kept storm while the King still lived, when he died, she, and I quote, let it be known to all who wished. Which either displays some pretty big balls of hers there, or people just already knew and didn't really care. Good on her for living her truth afterwards, though. And I've told you all of this because of all St Mungo's miracles, it is this that is most well known in Glasgow. The fish and the ring appear on the city's crest along with that motto, Let Glasgow Flourish. In fact, they are there along with other representations of his miracles. That robin which he resurrected, the green tree that got set on fire, and also a bell which there's a whole other thing about I'm not going to get into. If you want to see it, there's a picture on the website, or, you know, just Google it. Eventually, St Mungo, despite all his miracles, 
he died, was buried in the church which later became the cathedral, he who had founded the city of Glasgow. And from these humble beginnings, it grew. And from these beginnings grew Glasgow. Aside from the church, Glasgow was a fishing and market town situated at a crossing over the River Clyde, which grew gradually over the centuries. By the 1500s or so, it was a rich town, though nothing particularly special, excepting that everywhere is special to somebody, but for comparison purposes, it was one of but a number of similar-sized cities in Scotland, and not marked out by anything in particular. In the vicinity, there are a number of other villages and settlements that also play a part in its history, for they eventually, over a very long time, became subsumed into Glasgow. The historic church and village of Govan, Patrick once far more important, for there was the residence of the kings of Strathclyde, the village of Gorbals and many more that survive as names for parts of the city. This band of settlements along the Clyde between Highland and Lowland were, for most of history, overshadowed in Scotland by far larger places. From the very founding, when Dumbarton was the centre of the Kingdom of Alclut, to the larger east coast cities in Scotland, not least Edinburgh, the capital. Glasgow's growth from these rather humble origins to the absolute force it became, not just in Scotland, but globally, came due to the river's connection to the Atlantic Ocean and the lands across it, beginning in the 17th century with the rise of Glasgow as a merchant city, ruled by so-called tobacco lords, as Glasgow became the European hub for the import of tobacco, with sugar and cotton falling fast on its heels, as the city became an established and very important port. But the really meteoric rise of Glasgow came in the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution. Glasgow attracted people displaced from elsewhere in Scotland, and many from Ireland as well, and by the early 19th century it surpassed Edinburgh in size, to become the largest city in Scotland, so that this previously largely unremarkable place was also the second city of the British Empire, the greatest empire in the world. And that was a title it could claim throughout the 19th century, as Glasgow turned its attention to the most modern of heavy industries, shipbuilding, train building, engineering, all of this leading to a tremendous wealth for a very small amount of people, of which a very tiny proportion was invested into the city to give it its museums, parks, theatres and many other architectural marvels funded by city bodies that give the city the character that it has today. And when we think of history and we walk around a city like Glasgow and we can see the buildings that endure, we cannot see the sheer misery and awfulness that went alongside them. The second city of the British Empire is not a proud title. The British Empire is an institution for which the word evil is not quite strong enough. The wealth of Glasgow, like much of all of Britain, was generated off the backs of absolutely horrific crimes, particularly that of slavery. And this history very much shows in the city right up until today. Not that the wealth that was generated was even distributed, not even close to it, as a few fabulously rich men lived lives of extravagant luxury while all others suffered. And that is kind of setting the scene, bringing us up to the 19th century, where our next story starts. A story which is about iron. It was iron that would change the face of Glasgow forever in the 19th century. Iron and steam. 
From the 1830s onwards, the Clyde was radically transformed by modern invention, the power of labour and the capitalists who could wield it. Scottish engineers, MacGregor, Todd and Napier, on what had been quiet places on the outskirts of the city, not quite Glasgow proper, Govan, Maverside, Patrick. Many more would follow in their wake, and with such an incredible momentum, shipbuilding would become synonymous with Glasgow and the Clyde. There are various statistics knocking around, and they all seem pretty extreme in the numbers. It's generally agreed that from a standing start in the 1830s, by the early 1900s, approximately one-fifth of all ships in the world were built on the River Clyde, either in Glasgow proper or towns along the coast. By that point, they were, of course, clad in steel, but it was iron ships on which Glasgow's industry was first founded. These vast quantities of iron came from the mines and furnaces that sprang up in Lanarkshire to the south. And transported to Glasgow, they formed the hulls of ships that would sail across the world, the blood flowing through the veins of empire. And with the shipyards came the people, an explosion in population. People seeking a better life would be to gloss it far too positively. For many were seeking any life at all, people who had often been forced off their own land, from clearances in the Highland and indeed Lowlands, from the destitute fleeing the Great Famine in Ireland. And from further afield too they came, to toil in the shipyards and all the associated industries. People were forced to leave their rural homes behind. And that rural country, as we've touched on before in this podcast, was the home of supernatural horrors aplenty. The man-eating kelpies, murderous redcaps, all the deadly types of she, the knuckle of e in the sloire, the gaia carling, the uzric, on and on a litany of monsters that populated the land. These creatures the people left behind in the wild, but traded them in for nightmares far greater, the machines that worked iron, more deadly than the creatures of the night had ever been. And even if the jaws of the machines didn't get them, then all but the luckiest were crowded into awful slums, slums where pollution and disease ran rampant. And those men I mentioned before getting very rich did so from the labour of dispossessed people, who, in many cases, were almost working death sentences. But if there was one small mercy in all this darkness, it was found in the fact that this was now a city of iron. The power of the blacksmith against the supernatural had been known since time immemorial, and now that power was amplified ten, hundred, a thousandfold. Whatever the horrors of the city, the beings that plagued humanity since the dawn of time could not enter this place. The evil power of even human witches was almost driven to nothing when confronted with the hitherto unimaginable quantities of the metal that so repelled their maleficent magics. While there was a lot to hate about this place, the people who fled to here were forced into the city, would at least not be followed by their oldest enemies. There was a narrow, cobbled street in Glasgow grey stone tenements on each side. Those notable flats with their prominent bay windows that would become so emblematic of the city right up to the present day. It was the middle of a winter's night and the air was cold and though the population was crowded into these small homes, most were by now sound asleep or doing quiet indoor work. Though inevitably noise came from a number of windows and there were the odd figures coming and going wrapped up tightly against the cold. But in certain parts of the street, everything was almost completely still and silent. 
But somewhere on the street, there was the sound of a baby crying. A mother twitched her curtains, looked out from behind a thin glass window. Behind her, her own babe slept silently in his cot, the rest of her children sleeping around him. The heat of the massed bodies covered in blankets gave enough warmth to the room for them all, despite the cold. The mother wipes the condensation from the inside of the window and looks out. Slowly, with trepidation, for she thinks she has heard a sound. Not the sound of a child crying, that was common enough. No, a very specific, particular sound that resonates with something deep inside her. A sound that takes her back 20 years and 20 miles away to Loch Winnock, where she had been a child herself before the big city had wound her inexorably in with its spiked tentacles. To a night when she was dreaming, dreaming that she was gazing out of a high window onto the banks of the loch. It took her back to memories that had not surfaced since, memories buried deep inside and locked away, but memories which now ran with an icy shiver through her whole body. Her heart was racing, her blood pumping, for she knew that what she had heard, what she had imagined she heard, it was a sound that couldn't really have existed, it couldn't be a real memory. If it was, it was simply a memory from what must have been a nightmare. A thump, thump on the ground. A slow pounding. Back and forth, the mother looked along the street, nothing but lamplights and shadows, and yet... There. There was a breath in the freezing air, breath you could see, a great cloud of vapour rising upwards into the starry night sky, illuminated by a single coal gas lamp. And there was a noise, a noise like a slow wind in the treetops, a breath in and out. Slowly she bid her eyes to look down lower from that sickly illumination, had to force them to move to take in the source of the breathing, which was a shadow, a shadow that suddenly moved. She jumped backwards, and she was back in that attic room as a small child in what she now knew had been no dream, watching the same creature down by the lock, lit then by moonlight reflecting off the water's surface. And no longer was she an adult, but she was that child again, the child who stared at the unnatural thing, creeping, making its way along the banks. And that child who she had been had been ever so quiet for a while. But finally, it all got too much and she burst into tears. A sound that rang out across the quiet night, straight into the ears of the thing, which had turned its head, looked up directly at her, its gaze meeting hers, and opened and closed its jaws with a horrifying snap. And she had screamed and screamed. Back in the present day, though her whole body moved, she remained as quiet as the grave, holding it all back in. She had learned the lesson. But the babe that cried next door had never had the chance to learn such, wasn't even old enough to do so. 
the creature shouldn't be here. Shouldn't be here in the city, and yet it was. Or more accurately, she was. Thump, thump came the footsteps as she headed unerringly towards the house from which the crying came. The watching mother should do something, surely, but what could she do? Should she speak up and shout, simply so that this vignette of terror passes the Bechdel test? And then what? She knew that it would come for her. Actually, she suspects this isn't true. Jenny doesn't come for adults, but if she speaks, she might wake her own child, and then he will cry. Best to remain silent and still. So, instead of doing anything, she watches, transfixed. Unable to pull away, Jenny with the iron teeth lifts the sneck. The latch for you southerners and Americans. She lifts the sneck with surprising gentleness. So the only sound is the claws that scrape the tenement door. She pushes. There is the sound of the hinges. Light streams out for an instant and then the door slams shut so that the watching mother can no longer see. But her eyes remain fixed on that closed door. She shakes as she hears the sound again, the snap-snap of metal upon metal, over even the crying of the baby, and then, then there is a wetter sound, metal upon flesh, and then the sounds of the crying baby abruptly halt. And the door opens again. And now our watcher finally turns her head away, so that she does not see the creature slip back into the night, does not see what it has clamped in its jaws, shaking its head back and forth to squeeze the very last bits of life out, does not see blood dripping. She does not watch Jenny with the iron teeth feasting. Instead, the mother looks back at her own child, her gaze now intently on him, willing the boy not to wake. He sleeps calmly. A few minutes later, the mother dares to look back again, wiping condensation from the window. The night outside is just as freezing as it was, but now there is no breath in the air, and everything is utterly silent. Infant mortality rates in industrial cities could be as high as 40% of all births. This baby would be incredibly keenly missed by some, but his disappearance, his death, would not be an unusual occurrence in the cruelty of the city. A perfect place for a child-eating monster to hide. Yes, indeed, it was true that iron was effective against the unseelie creatures, but for Jenny with the iron teeth, this place held no fear, and attracted by the sounds of their tears, she feasted upon the most young and vulnerable. Now, what Jenny with the iron teeth was exactly is unclear. Had she been a creature who'd always had iron teeth and simply moved into the city when others of her kind could not? Or was she perhaps as I wildly hypothesise, and which is my favourite theory, a monstrous fae who had evolved an adaptation that allowed her to prey upon others of her own kind, hunting the redcaps, the fairies, the brown men of the moors, her iron teeth the perfect weapon against them. And now she found herself a new place within the city, where humans were so numerous and her normal prey non-existent. 
Or was she an adaptation to the city, a fae that had evolved to live not just amongst the iron, but to incorporate it into herself, iron teeth as sharp as any of the evil machines that ruled the place? Jenny with the iron teeth stalked Glasgow for decades at the end of the 19th century. Parents would shush their children with her name, warning them of what would happen if they cried too loud at night and attracted her awful attention. And if they didn't listen, then their parents weren't beyond getting some iron tongs and clapping them together outside the door. And that gave the Burns a fright. Though of course this was all done for the children's benefit, because the threat from Jenny was very real indeed. And if they feared her, that would be in the end better for them. Any benefits to the parents of having quiet children were entirely incidental. What exactly Jenny was, if there was just one of her, or if there were many creatures of this type, where she came from and where she went at night, all of this was unclear. But there were some hints about where she might live. Glasgow Green is a large central park that butts up against the river with a long and storied history. At one time, large houses were dotted around the edge of the park, separated from the park by tall walls. Bold children would make raids into their gardens, simply for a dare sometimes, but other times to have off with fruits and veg and whatever else they could find. The gardens of one such house met the park at a place where there was a ravine, thick with tall trees and a dense undergrowth, an eerie feel to it, especially in the night when the mist rolled up off the river. And there was none of that fancy lighting here, so it was pitch black. Nevertheless, an occasional brave group of children would make a raid over the wall and into the large, only marginally better kept gardens beyond. But there was one house they always avoided, for there they spied an old woman, who, when she grinned, showed rows of iron teeth. And when word spread, that whole end of the park became avoided. Now some adults will want to say that the woman in question did indeed exist, but that she was perfectly human, her metallic teeth the sad result of a botched bout of dentistry that had left the fixings on her teeth very prominently viewable. A sad case, and sadder for the mocking of cruel children. But the children knew better, and stayed away. Jenny with the iron teeth lived in the house in the park. But as the 19th century turned into the 20th, Jenny was perhaps forgotten. Glasgow continued to expand in the first half of the 20th century, and by the end of the 19th century, steel had replaced iron for ships, and Glasgow and the surrounding towns continued to produce huge numbers of them. According to one source, 30% of all ships in the First World War came from the area. But after the First World War, and continuing after the Second, Glasgow's fortunes dipped and the problems of poverty, overcrowded slums and pollution became ever more acute. Until, in the 1950s, there began a massive slum clearance operation, moving people out of the slums to newly constructed tower blocks and to whole new towns on the outskirts of the city, drastically reducing Glasgow's population and reshaping it, in a way that is generally considered, despite its very lofty aims, to have been a tremendous failure. The tower blocks being just as bad, or worse even, than the slums that they were meant to replace. But that's all kind of by the by, a little bit of flavour for our story, as we find ourselves in those 1950s on the cusp of all this change. And while I'm going to fictionalise it a fair bit, the broad outlines of the story I'm about to tell 
really happened. Within the city of Glasgow, there are not one or two, but a whole four cities of the dead, the Glasgow Necropolises. The most notable, generally known as Glasgow Necropolis, stands on a hill not far from St Mungo's Cathedral, the grand successor to his small church. And from that necropolis, one can look down upon the city, surrounded by haphazardly arranged but very grand memorials to the dead. Here, the city's richest individuals were buried raised above the living, in death as they had been in life. But the rumours that started in a playground in 1954 concerned not that cemetery, but the slightly smaller and substantially more packed and flat southern necropolis, where a full 250,000 of the dead jostled for space, a necropolis made for the poorer residents of Glasgow, though there are still many notable names buried there, and impressive sandstone and marble graves and the odd elaborate funerary monument still stand proud. But the poor make up the vast majority of the dead under the ground there. Rumours in the playground were hardly anything new, but the ones that September were of a most unusual nature, spread by children, awed and terrified, and harking back to that creature that had haunted the city a century earlier though by then they had a different name for it. For this was a time of mass media, films, televisions, books and comics, and for more than a generation, stories of monsters were told not just in local folklore, not even primarily in local folklore anymore, but instead via all these new mediums, and particularly in the wildly beloved genre of horror which had exploded in the 20th century. A genre which brought the illicit, spine-tingling thrill of terror and the fascination with the outlandishly macabre, violence, the supernatural and the unknown. Despite the fear it induced, or maybe because of it, it was compelling to many. I feel it's possible, if not entirely likely, that some of you listeners might be familiar with horror. And that international horror genre brought with it new words for old terrors. A rebranding, if you will. The rumours that passed around the playground those days were of a serious nature indeed, and started with the shocking fact that two children had died in the days before. Two boys. It wasn't clear who exactly they were. They went to another school, but somebody or somebody's brother's cousin definitely knew them, and it was undoubtedly true. And the boys, they weren't murdered by any human hand. They died at the jaws of a creature whispered the fevered rumours spread in the strong Glaswegian accents spoken in the various schools of the Gorbals. Seven foot tall, living in the southern necropolis, a vampire they called it, but not like most vampires know, for this vampire had teeth made of metal. Iron teeth. The memory of Jenny with the iron teeth had faded by this generation, and so... The children interpreted this child-eating iron-fanged monster in their own way, congruent with more modern monsters. Many children dismissed the rumours, of course, cruelly teasing those who repeated them. But the children were serious. Many people had seen the vampire around the necropolis. It hunted children who strayed in there, or near its walls, lunged out of the shadows, took them up in its jaws, metal puncturing flesh, and then it was away. And this was not just an eater of crying babies. Any child was a potential meal for this monster. 
The children who told the tales knew they were opening themselves up for all kinds of mockery and bullying, but they told them anyway, as they must to warn others. This wasn't a game. Two children were dead. Lessons in school became increasingly disrupted towards the end of the day as the children grew restless and scared. Any of them could be next. And this day we get to witness something very rare. The real reaction of children to a monster in their midst. Not the fictionalised account we might assume is how children would react. This is a real life example of how children behave when they know there is a monster on the loose. And this is not as timid a reaction as we might potentially expect. Now this was a time and place when children didn't necessarily go home immediately after school. Many homes were incredibly crowded with multiple families living under one roof, one of the worst slums in Britain, not the kind of place you'd really like to spend a lot of time. And in the industrial inner city, green places were few and far between. So the necropolis served the children well as a sort of park they could go and hang around in. It was a place they could often be found after the school day had ended. But a place that was no longer safe to them. And so when adults saw large groups of youths heading towards the necropolis that early autumn evening, it was not anything unusual, and they did not pay any particular attention to it. Perhaps if they looked closer at the children they might have picked up on some signs, but they didn't. This was just the usual hijinks of Ouija weens. But it was far from that. A vampire with iron teeth was killing children, and the children knew just what that meant they had to do. In a world where children grew up very fast indeed, they had to fend for themselves. And they were doing just that. Differences between them were put on hold. From toddlers to teenagers, they grabbed whatever makeshift weapons they could get their hands on, sticks and stones and the occasional knife and axe, and the intention was clear. They would find the vampire with the iron teeth and get revenge for the murders by cutting off its head. The swelling crowds of children reached the necropolis. Some went through the gates, some scaled the walls. Now, there was of course no organisation to this. This was a mob, or several mobs converging, a wild and raucous and chaotic. Hundreds of armed children searching the cemetery, looking for any sign of their supernatural opponent. If this creature, like Jenny, was attracted to the sound of children, then surely they would get its attention. Though... Whether any solitary creature might confront such a huge number of human beings seems unlikely. But if it had chosen to make its dark den amongst the gravestones, then the children would flush it out. As the hunt intensified and more and more brave children arrived, the noise of shouting voices in the necropolis got ever louder. And finally, those living in the houses around began to take notice. This was no usual Thursday night. The shouts and screams became so loud as to drown out conversations taking place in nearby homes. And eventually, someone called the police. Constable Alex Deeprose attended that night and he was utterly unprepared for the sheer scale of what he saw. Children in vast numbers, running and clambering around everywhere. And now there was the occasional adult with them too, who'd been drawn into the maelstrom. Some of them trying to keep order, but most trying to understand what was going on. 
The policeman was bewildered. He was expecting some simple vandalism or the like, but this was far beyond that. And at the sight of the policeman in his distinctive uniform, children swarmed around him, each trying to tell him what was happening all at once, drowning out the voices of the others. He found himself in the midst of a vast crowd, later telling a newspaper he felt like the Pied Piper of Hamelin, though presumably without the murderous intent of that folkloric character. Eventually he got the story out of the excited rabble. They were there to kill the vampire with the iron teeth. It had murdered children already, and they wouldn't be next. Could he help? Would he help? Would he bring more policemen? He did his best to understand and to try and calm the children. There were no missing boys, no murders that he knew of. He dismissed the idea of the vampire, but he was overwhelmed by the sheer numbers and soon found himself also talking to adults, who, with respect to his knowledge and authority, asked him if there were any truth in what the children said about a vampire. And when asked, Constable Deeprose went to give a dismissive reply, but paused. With the dark of night falling, mist beginning to swirl, the whole scene illuminated by the fires of a nearby steelwork, and standing amongst row upon row headstones, surrounded by a mob of terrified children, Constable Deeprose looked out across the city of the dead, a vampire with iron teeth. Perhaps it stirred some memory from his own childhood, and he thought of the clatter of tongs as his mother warned him of Jenny with the iron teeth. And he found that he couldn't entirely dismiss the idea. The task of clearing so many children out was well beyond his capabilities, and they continued to scour the cemetery for the vampire with little luck. And as the night grew darker, and particularly as a heavy Glasgow rain started to fall, the children gradually dispersed. They were back there the next night and on Saturday, but by the Monday, when no further children were reported missing, when every inch of the necropolis had been searched and nothing found, when there had not even been another sighting, well, interest in it died out. And many children took to mocking those who had believed, even if they'd been there themselves, of course. They'd never actually believed it. Or so they claimed. Now this story has a bit of an unlikely epilogue. For some blamed the hysteria of the children on the influence of American horror comics, on their lurid sensationalism, which seduced minds into believing such patent nonsense. And there had been a 1953 horror comic, Dark Mysteries, which had featured a vampire with iron teeth, which does seem somewhat compelling as at least a partial explanation. And this hysteria about the hysteria reached all the way to Parliament in Westminster, where the vampire with the iron teeth was cited explicitly. And the Children and Young Persons bracket Harmful Publications Act was passed that essentially outlawed horror comics aimed at children, pretty much as a direct result of this. And it's still on the statute books to this very day, though prosecutions under it seem to be pretty much non-existent. And on that note, this story draws to a close. And what became of the Gorbals vampire, like what became of Jenny with the iron teeth, remains a mystery. Though it may very well be the same mystery. Glasgow is full of ghosts and the supernatural. But there have been no more sightings of those with iron teeth. 
Perhaps the city had simply been too much for her, and she had returned to the country to hunt Fay. A rather downbeat, or at least petering out, note to end on. Now, as I said before, I'm not going to do a full discussion, but just a few things about Jenny with the Iron Teeth and the Gorbals Vampire. Firstly, the source for Jenny with the Iron Teeth is not actually folklore. It's a poem written by a Scottish railway worker and poet, Alexander Anderson. There is a suggestion that such a character existed in folklore earlier. It seems very likely. There are a couple of other examples of similarly named Iron Teeth characters from English folklore, but it's not 100% sure, and there aren't any written sources before the poem. Within that poem, the character of Jenny with the Iron Teeth is fictional, by which I mean the poem is about mothers scaring their bairns with tales of Jenny in order to get them to shut up, making the sound of her feet and jaws with the household implements. It's a funny poem, and I put it on the website if you want to read it. So I kind of took that idea and ran with it a little. The Gorbals Vampire happened pretty much strictly as I said it, and I've covered the key points there. But one thing I found interesting in researching this is that it wasn't the only such hunt in Glasgow for supernatural beings. And while the iron-toothed vampire is very famous, there were records of other similar hunts being carried out by children for different supernatural beings. In the 30s, there were hunts for Spring-Heeled Jack and earlier for a white lady, and intriguingly a banshee at a time earlier than that. So while the iron-toothed vampire is by far the most famous, children hunting monsters was not something unknown, and certainly seems to predate American horror comics. And that, I think, speaks much for either, depending on how you looked at it, the murderous tendencies of children, or their brave willingness to fight back against threats to them. Or at least fight back against unseen, potentially fictional enemies who they outnumber by hundreds to one. Which, by my reckoning, is still pretty brave. And that's it for this long-delayed episode. I am keenly aware that there's not been as much podcast this year as I would have liked, this year being 2023, for anyone listening in the far future. Even though my live shows have been doing well, they've definitely taken some time away from the podcast, and I have a couple of ideas about how to rectify that going forward while continuing to develop the live storytelling, which is something I really enjoy, and which those of you who've been to it seem to enjoy as well. But you've heard all my plans to be more productive before, so I wouldn't entirely blame you if you didn't totally trust me in it. But do believe me that I absolutely love doing this podcast, and I fully intend to make as much as I possibly can. As always, I really want to thank all my patrons. You have made the development of this possible. If you aren't a patron, there are 11 Patreon episodes now, and you only pay when I do a new one. I'm going to do another main episode before I do another Patreon one, as it just seems unfair to charge when I'm making so little, but once there is a main episode, then I'll be back to do a 12th Patreon one. Thank you this time, especially to Julia, Lucilla, Adele, John, Stephanie and Belle Fairy, who have signed up since the last episode. It really means so much to me. Now, I'm not going to say what the next episode is going to be, because I don't know yet. Rather than prevaricating over it for ages, I'm going to just open one of their books I own, physically or digitally, pick a story I really like, and just tell it. We will see where that approach gets us. And then in the new year, I'm going to try a couple of new things with the podcast, and I'll let you know about them in due course. So in conclusion, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll be seeing you much sooner this time, I promise. 
for some more tales of Britain and Ireland. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.